Hi, welcome back to the Village Trader Podcast. I'm your host, Njabulun Zuxaban. This podcast is probably brought to you by Exynos. Enjoy tight spread, speedy, speedy and reliable execution in FX, stock indices, US stocks, commodities, and precious metals. And an overall great platform. Register for free to open an account on exynos.com. This is episode number 59. This podcast is aiming to help new and experienced traders navigate the markets and learn from other traders. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with Senior Portfolio Manager at Sunlam Wealth, Nick Kunz. Good afternoon, Nick. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Good, good, good. Yeah, back at work Monday after a nice, uh, after a nice hot Joburg weekend. But yeah, back in the office. I know. Well, well, welcome to the show, man. And thank you very much for taking the time. Pleasure, pleasure. Looking forward to it. Cool, cool. Um, let's get straight into it, man. How did you find yourself in the capital markets? Oh, I love farmers in the capital markets. Well, it's 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 a bit of a long story, but um, I always want, I've always been involved in once again involved in trading and. Um, was back in sort of I was, I was born in Durban and uh, I was sitting sitting one day my grandfather had passed away it was the late 1980s and uh, when we were going through all this stuff with my mom we uh, we came across this this sort of like a old fashioned diary that we and piles and piles of it and we didn't even realize we started going through and it was all his trading diary and he had meticulously written and and obviously sharpened his little pencil drawn graphs he had owned all these platinum shares and he had this quite a substantial portfolio that that we didn't even know he had that he left left us as a family and and that sort of perked my interest in trading and then after I sort of matriculated in 1990, there was no sort of uh, trading environment in South Africa. We were really, well, certainly not in Durban anyway, and I didn't really want to go to Joburg. Um, so uh, I decided 1991, I got in an airplane, packed a backpack, had a bit of bucks in my back pocket, and I flew to London. And I found myself trying to get a job on the on the London Life floor, which um, which I don't know if people are showing my age here will remember that. Uh, those pictures of, of guys in their color jackets screaming and yelling. And it's it's a bit of a long story, but I managed to get myself a job as, a, as, the, as what they call the runner, which was a clerk. And uh, my job was literally run around and pick up these little trading cards and, and hand them to my dealer and and uh, got a job on the floor. And, and that's kind of how I started. I mean, that's the real short part. Of course, the hard work came afterwards, but that's how I got my foot in the door at the first stage was, was, was on the London International Futures Exchange. Yeah, that was quite brave, just moving uh, um, to, to London just like that. How old were you at the time? Mm. I was 19. I literally had a backpack. I had a one-way ticket. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate enough that my father my father had a, a German passport, so I had a dual citizenship with South African and German. So I didn't have to have a you know, two- or five-year visa that it was at the time. I had an open-ended ticket. And uh, yeah, it was it was either brave or stupid. I'm not quite sure. My mother and my father thought I was absolutely mad. I'd, I'd been my idea of going to university. I wanted to make money, and uh, that was it. Yeah, so I was the only South African at the time, and it was the uh, 19, early 90s, 1991, and we weren't exactly the most uh, positive. Uh, we weren't exactly flavor of the month internationally. This was obviously before the, the elections and the turn of, of the new government. So uh, I took a little bit of stick, but uh, it was a great learning curve. And yeah, that's the <laughs> brave or stupid. I'm not sure, but that was my that was how I cut my teeth. And how how was it like starting out in in first of all like as young as you were and uh, and to top that off mm. um, in a foreign country? No, so it was look. I mean, what happens? What happens? I mean, that was my passion. I mean, I literally every waking hour, you know, I'd, I'd work all day as as this little clerk running around. I was earning absolutely nothing. I was practically a glorified sort of coffee boy. But uh, I was in the pits. I was learning, and I, I was lucky enough to have a, a chap called Brian Kirkwood, uh, who sort of 
backed Myanmar's wing. He was an American guy that was running his own arbitrage fund. Um, and he sort of, you know, after hours, after the market shut, we'd sit for hours and you'd teach me and, and do all the rest of it. And, and uh, it, interesting as luck would have it, so I sort of learned under him for a number of years. And uh, we were working for a company called Bear Stearns. I'm sure maybe some of your listeners will know the old Bear Stearns <laughs> before it crashed. They were the sort of, that was, but at the time, they were sort of the dominating uh, investment bank at the time. And uh, he decided to to sort of get up and go. He got a job after in Frankfurt, and uh, Brian said, "Do you want to come with him to Frankfurt?" And uh, I could basically work with him, and we could you know do the rounds. So that was my next step: was getting on a plane and flying to Frankfurt. And then, you know, as my career progressed, I, I, was, I was I was a trader in Frankfurt. I was a trader in in Stockholm. I worked on the Swedish exchange in Chicago and all around the world. So I've had a real good. Um, sort of learning curve and as the, the markets have evolved and progressed you know I got involved in option trading which at the time was the sort of the, the new hot thing in the late 90s early double O's uh, went across and as I said I was in Stockholm which was the turn of the sort of dot-com sector you know that's where all like Ericsson and Nokia and so, all these like massive uh, telecom stocks were trading and it was just like it was a nice time to be around before things obviously crashed and burned but uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I guess I just followed the money and just learned as I went along. I mean, this, I'm still, I'm still learning. I mean, every single day you learn something. You never stop learning as a trader. Never, never, never. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, you learn quite, uh, quite a bit um, uh, every day here. Um, so mm-hmm. you, you were quite fortunate to, to, to have a mentor who put you under his wing for at, at, at yeah. an early age. Uh, what are some of the key, key first principles that he taught you that you still apply today? I'll never forget one thing, and, and I hope someone's listening, whoever's listening to your podcast can write this down. He's, at the time, he said to me, Nick, you, I'm going to take you on board. He's going to back me. He financially gave me money to my own seed capitalist to, to give me my trading start. And he said to me, you must remember, you never, we're not human, you know, we're not computers. We're going to make mistakes. You know, markets are all about human emotion. It's fear and greed. He said, I don't care if you're wrong. Nick, I do not care if you're wrong. But if you stay wrong, I'm going to fire you. And I've never forgotten that. Eh? So there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And he said, the other one I always remember him saying to me as well was, uh, you know, as a trader, we're not investors, we're traders. As a trader, you just want to make more than you lose. So you're going to have 100 trades on a day or 100 trades in a month, or it's going to have a frequency trade. You just want to get literally, I mean, on simplistic basis, you just want to get 51 right and 49 wrong. That's all you want to do. Just make more than you, just will always want to make more than you lose. So those are two bits of advice that I've never forgotten. I still use to this day. Don't stay wrong. Yeah, I, I I like the the, the 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 first one, man. Don't it's okay to be wrong, but don't stay wrong. Hundred percent, yeah. Mm. And to this day, I mean, recently, I I, I mean, I, not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, when all the Chinese tech space uh, stories were breaking, and everyone's worried about Chinese tech and internet stocks, and I had for a couple of a whole lot of clients, I had a whole basket of Chinese tech as part of my portfolios. You know, it wasn't a massive position, but we had like, you know, we had Alibaba, we had Baidu, we had, we had Billy, we had, a, we had uh, Dida, we had a whole lot of stuff. And I remember the time just didn't even phase me. I waited till uh, I waited till China opened the next morning. I woke up at uh, Hoppers 4 in the morning. I just sold everything. They're all, they're all losers, but I didn't even, it didn't even phase me for one second because I know, you know, you're out of that trade, you look for the next one. You look for the next one. Don't stay wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, why do you think that, that most traders uh, um, fail to do that? Fail to to accept being wrong and move on, moving on to the to 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 the next trade and cutting that loss short while it's still small. I think when people start, there's there's a number of reasons. I think firstly, they probably get a little bit too emotionally attached. 
Uh, there's another one for you. You know, you never never get emotional about <laughs> trading. It's it's a, it's it's a job. You know, you're there to to do to make your money, and you want to make a little bit of money, and that's your job. And you want to make a little bit of money frequently every single day. Um, I think people get too attached to it, and I think also it's rules. You know, I think a lot of people forget the the sort of very basics. You know, trading is is a job, and it's it's actually quite boring. You know, you want to know, you want to put a trade on, you want to make your, whether you're trading options or bonds or whatever asset class or cryptos, who knows what you're doing. In your mind, you've, you've done your perimeters, you've got your models. I'm very strict when it comes to my models, my rule-based trading. I never, ever break my rules. When I put a trade on, the first thing I do when I put a trade on, the easy, the easy part, the easy part is entering a trade. You can buy at any level you want. You know, the hardest part is, is, is managing that risk on the back of it. So when I put a trade on, I always have my stop loss and my take profit at exactly the same time. On my order entry window, I've got my level I want to take profits on. I know my percentage. I've worked it out. I've worked out my, my, my average true range. I know what's going to be. And I have my stop loss as well. And I know when I'm going to get out as well. And I think people often forget that they they, they, they kind of have that hope. They see it moving against them. They say, <laughs> you know what? It's going to bounce back. It's going to be. We've all been there. We've all, I still sometimes do it. But... I try always, always, always to, uh, to stick to my rules and remember it's a rule-based system. And I write, and, and just for the record, I'm a little bit old school. I write down every single trade I put on. I have a journal I keep, everything I buy, everything I sell, everything I'm short, everything I'm long. Before I put it on, I have my reasons and my rules. I run through them. And that's, it's, 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 it sounds old-fashioned and hard work, but uh, stick to the basics. Just remember those. It's, our, what we do for a living, we trade and buy and sell risk. It's very, very much rule-based. I think people forget that. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to touch on, on journaling in a moment, but um, what are some of the, the uh, uh, examples of key rules that you, you always stick to and never break and advise like, you know, to other people never to break those rules? Uh, stop losses, very, very important. Um, you know, always, always, always put a stop loss on, always. Like I can't control what happens when I sleep. And, and a lot of the... A lot of trades that we put on, and certainly in, in my in my past when I was trading very much my own account, before I looked, was managing uh, client money, um, I couldn't control what happened. I couldn't do control what the dollar yen did at three o'clock in the morning while you're sleeping. If you have a stop loss on, you can always remember that you're going to you know live to fight another day. You know our game is you can't put put young traders out there or traders that are starting old or young. You know, you've, you need capital to trade, and you've got to preserve that capital. So, for number one rule is always have a stop loss, and then, and then number two, you know, have your rules. You know, it, some things, some things don't work for everyone, and some things do work for some people. You know, if you, I mean, I'm being, I'm making a joke here, but I mean, if standing standing on your head with your shoes off once a day makes you money at a particular time, works for you, stick to that rule. Stick to what <laughs> makes you money. Um, and, and and stick to those rules. And it's again, I'm, I'm going to sound so boring on this, but rules, rules, and rules. So those so stop losses are very important. Um, and also be very, I would say, be very, very careful with with gearing. I mean, I've spent you know 25 years trading in leverage markets, and and I still treat with a hell of a lot of respect. Um, and I'm very, very much am careful of how much I gear up. In fact, I hardly ever use much gearing. You know, in the beginning, I was like, this is great. You know, I can get 100 times gearing on a <laughs> dollar-yen trade or a euro. Or... No, it doesn't work like that. It's it's never going to be sustainable. So watch, be very careful how much gearing you use. Um, and, and, and once again, remember, I think also that, you know, we often I quote, to people, I don't necessarily buy and sell uh, shares. Or I don't buy and sell options. I, I often say that we, we trade risk. 
risk management is, is a key rule. Work out how much risk you want to take, work out your gearing, how much of your portfolio that you want to risk, how much percentage you want to put in the market. There's a lot of rules. Uh, I, I look at little indicators like average true ranges, how much is something going to move in a day, what's the likelihood. I deal a lot with things like standard deviations, mean reversions, um, a lot of point tricket stuff like that. But once again, built up over years in my models. And uh, as I say, even to this day, stick with them. And then old-fashioned journals, you know. If you, the, sometimes the best book, someone said to me, what's the best training book you ever read? I said to them, it's my own journal. It's my own stuff. I can look back after 20 years ago and say that particular setup, that particular trade, I remember how it worked out. Yeah, yeah. I like that. You, you strike me as, as a, 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 what's the word, conservative trader. Like you, 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 you watch tightly that risk. What's your basic methodology in terms of, risk and money management and how much do you do you risk on a, on any given trade so I t- so i think it was, it's it's i don't want to be too conservative i think so it's just a, p- a lot of uh, you read a lot of these like turtle traders a lot of these books or momentum traders or modern traders will tell you you know never miss more than three percent i think that's way too conservative to risk three percent of your portfolio on a single trade i mean i'd be a little bit more aggressive i'm anywhere between five six seven eight percent on extremes um, so I'm quite happy to risk you know, up to up to if, if I if I really believe in a trade and it's setting up really nicely, I'm happy to do anything up to eight percent. I've never more than that though uh, of your of your basic your value of your account. So if you've got a you know if you've got a hundred thousand rand account, uh, you I'm happy to risk up to eight thousand on a single trade uh, with obviously with stop losses. But uh, at any particular, but I think also to add to the conversation, you know sometimes sometimes. You don't always have to have a trade on. I, I often get traders who, who think that your your job as a trader is always have a trade on. You know, you're trading for a living. You've got to have a trade on every single day. You actually don't. You know, sometimes the best trade is to actually have nothing on at all and just wait for wait for it to come to you. Be strict with those rules. Wait for your yeah. parameters to hit, and do that. But yeah, but I'd, I'm a little. I'm not as conservative as it sounds. <laughs> I'm prepared to take. I'm prepared to take the. And if and if I like it, if I like a trade, I will bet as much as my rules allow me to bet on a single trade. Yeah. And uh, um, what are what are some of the the attributes that 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 varies that the um, that risk you know between two percent and and eight percent on on any given trade? Is it just a technical picture or a combination of technicals and fundamentals? Uh, all of the above. Um, I mean, I tend to look at the basic price more than anything else. Like you know, often people have often quoted me. I've said, "Trade what's in front of you, not what you think." You know, what is that price on the screen? There's nothing more a better indication of the price in front of you. So I use a combination of both. Um, I like to look at technicals first. I like to look at basic momentums, overboughts, oversold, RSI. I use a lot of them. Um, uh, I actually quite like, I, I, with currencies, I quite like sort of old-fashioned things like Fibonacci levels. You know, currencies, for those who are looking at, at trading, you know, currencies don't have a closing price like shares do. You know, so you don't close at five o'clock and open at nine the next morning. So on technicals, for what it's worth, in my experience, they, they tend to look better with, with things that don't close. I guess that's why people like these cryptos and bitcoins and that so much because they're continuously trading seven days a week. Um, so I look at technicals and then I like to back it up with fundamentals. Um, I like to, there's still a little bit of old fashioned uh, sort of stockbroker in me, which likes to look at sort of valuations, uh, look at the earnings. Um, and then I look at I look at events coming up. So I want to know, 
if I'm going to be getting into, say, for a stock, for example, or a currency for that matter, or a bond, it doesn't matter. You know, if there's a if there's a Federal Reserve meeting coming up on a, on a Wednesday, there's no ways I'm going to get into a dollar-denominated <laughs> trade or a, a dollar trade before that. I never trade around events. That's just uh, flipping coins. So those are a couple of couple of things I use. No, I mean, got you, got you. So, uh, um, you know, in, in trading, I found that um, the entry is the easiest part of the of the equation. Um, the exits are quite harder, than, uh, are quite harder. Mm. Stop losses a bit is harder, but not as hard as take profits. How do you do you do you take a profit? So, well, I, as I said, when I, when I enter a trade on, when I put a trade on, I tend to put my take profit level exactly the same time. So literally uh-huh. on most electronic platforms, most electronic platforms, I've already worked it out. Like I'm not, I personally am not looking for the, the home run. I'm not trying to look for 20, 30% trade. You know, never. I'm happy to get four, five, 6% after costs, after fees, after my slippage, I work out all my brokerage. Whatever my cost is, my interest, if I'm trading on gearing with, with CFDs or single stocks, I know what my interest charges are per day. That all goes into my model. So I know, I don't even look at it straight away. I put stuff on. That's not necessary to say if a trade is going in my favor, I don't sort of stretch it out a bit. You know, I let it run. I'll put a trailing, a trailing sort of take profit on. I'll let it run a little bit more. Um, and if I really, here's another one just to blow people's minds. If I really like the trade, and it's going in your favor, and you really—it's really going. The hardest thing to do is actually add, add to it. And I'm still to this day, 25 years later, trying to deal with the fact, like mentally, to add to a trade and actually make it bigger. Um, and that's something I'm still working on at the moment. But that, but my biggest winners have been to trades I've actually added on when they start running in your favor, not actually cut, not actually taking profit. Like a lot of junior traders will say, okay, it's five, six, ten percent, whatever is in my favor. Let's take half off. Let's take a quarter off. In fact. The good guys and the top traders actually add to those winning trades. It's a very difficult mental thing to do, but that's the right way to do it. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's my basic approach. Um, you know, whenever I find myself in a winning trade, I just keep on adding to the position. Um, in fact, I, I never have a, I don't have um, take profits on the position. I always just trade my stop and add to the position as it goes into my direction. Yeah, well, well, then you're off to a good start. It, it, it is exactly the right way to do it. Honestly, that's the best way to do it. And as I said, it's a hard thing to get right. Um, but that is exactly what to do. Yeah, and I think the the tough thing about uh, about that approach, and I think it's, it's it's why most people find it difficult to to stick with, is because you want there, there are very few home runs uh, um, trades you're gonna have, and bunch of like sixty seventy percent of your positions are going are going to lose you money. And staying with uh, the seventy percent a seventy percent loss uh, uh, loss rate is not is not an easy thing, at least from a psychological perspective. No, it's not. But then, but then again, I hop back to really my first day with my, what my sort of my original mentor said to me. He said, just, you know, you, you got to make more than you lose. That, that's the goal. And, yeah. and you'll notice with top with top win rates and, and everyone, every trader out there who's trading for a living, you've got to know your win rate. It's like, what is your, exactly what you said now, what is your win rate to your loss rate? Um, and a lot of the top guys out there, you know, they're, that they're losing 60, 60, 65% of the time, yet they're still making money. Because exactly what you've highlighted now, and it's in black and white. You let your winners run, and you let your, you cut your losses, and you're gonna you're always gonna bank bigger winners and cut shorter losses. That makes sense. So you're on the right track. Yeah, um, you know, getting back to 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 uh, um, journals. Uh, you you said you, you are, your your grandfather left you his trading journal. Um, do you, do you consider mm. that that the the best gift he could have given you? Um, you know, over and above. Um, the assets that he left behind. 
I think so, definitely, because I mean, we we actually we quite spoiled as as sort of modern traders, aren't we? Because we there's so many systems you can use. Everything's electronic. Um, I mean, even when I started out as as an option trader, um, we had to literally price up sort of uh, you know the, the skulls model ourselves on a trading floor and had to work out in a millisecond the deltas we had to hedge. Everything you know literally on the back of an envelope. <laughs> Whereas nowadays with computers, it's all done for you. Um, but yeah, I guess for me it was the the discipline of seeing someone hand draw uh, a graph on a, on a grid line and, and write down the closing prices that I guess he got from Minotel Mercury or whatever local newspaper was in Durban at the time uh, every single day from the business section. And, and that's a very different discipline. And I think maybe even a, a better discipline instead of just you know flicking a button like we do on our smartphone and seeing yeah. a price. I think I think you're far more involved when you actually, you know. I'm not saying we have to go out and do that, but I'm saying that was a lesson <laughs> that, that that to me. But I think also to me, it was it was a lesson that uh, in this profession, I think if you, and I, mean, I do believe this honestly, in this profession, I think if you do the work and you do the homework, you can get rewarded for it. I've seen yeah. it myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you also mentioned that your your journal is the best book that you've read. Um, you know, what mm-hmm. are some of the lessons that you you know you keep picking up on on your journals, both from your grandfather's journal and your your journals over the years? Uh, trying to sell a top, trying to pick a top. How many times? I mean, I typically, <laughs> if I look back at my win rates, I, I do make. I typically play the short side more than I do the long side. I guess that's just my background. I like to be a little bit contrarian, so I like to swim upstream a bit. And I think that's from my, you know, from the rules that if you, if you look at sort of traders that or futures traders or traders that trade with gearing, you know, it's something like 95% loss rate. You know, 95% people lose their money. So my my background to that is I, I don't want to be the 95%. I want to be the five. So I need to do the opposite to everyone else. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, shorting is a torturous, a torturous affair. But uh, if I learned one lesson, it's 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 be very very careful trying to pick a top. You know these these markets. Human psychology always thinks things can run longer, so it's far easier to let things run further to the upside. On the on the other side, lessons I learned looking back on my trading journals, it's a lot easier to pick a bottom and go long because it ten things, markets and asset classes, and I'm talking sort of big big market here. Um, markets tend to tend to not stay oversold as long as you think, because ultimately it becomes a price that people are prepared to pay, and it's a lot easier to try pick a bottom than it is to try pick a top after a cycle. That's for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it also partly it's because um, you know how high is high, and you know at least on on the short side on the on the on the bottom side there's a low somewhere and. Could be zero, but mm. there is a low. Uh, there is a low somewhere with highs. Absolute. The sky is absolutely the limit. Absolutely, and if you and if you start sort of if you if you're playing in sort of fairly liquid shares or fairly liquid instruments, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's options or equities or bonds or whatever it is, you know, at some point intrinsic value comes into play. So if something has a has a net worth, I mean, we've. We saw it with uh, in in the South African market over the last uh, two years. I mean, there's been. I mean, let me tell you something. There's been an unbelievable chance on the SA markets. Everyone had a chance to make some money this in the last twelve months, whether it be Aspen or Sassel or, you know, at the time not as easy as you thought picking a bottom. But at some point, something had a value. You know, yeah. Sassel at twenty two rand. I mean, the sum of the parts was worth a hundred. You know, it was not going to zero. <laughs> but at at the time, when you're sitting there with a long position and you've been buying it since fifty bucks. You know, it's tough. Eh? 
But uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's you're right, and just reiterating what you've said, it's it's a lot easier to uh, to to try pick up a quality oversold instrument than it is to try pick a top because people, you know, everyone else is thinking it's still going to go higher. Yeah. Um, do do you have any uh, um, story whose experience, um, you know, uh, is still imprinted in, in in your brain to this day? And what was the lesson that you learned from from those stories, both um, good and bad um, stories? I think, I guess, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, uh, I guess one that stayed with me was was a was a chap that I used to work with in London on the life floor. He was a he was a when I first started out, he was a he was a proper Essex geezer as they call them, um, and he was trading in 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 the FTSE pit at the time. And uh, I remember he was he used to sit in the corner and and trade the markets. He was also an option trader, but he'd walk in sort of every day, and his his goal was to make was to make a hundred ticks, which is like a hundred points on a trade, which is, which, which is like, there was 10 points of contract. So it's like a hundred, it's like a thousand pounds. He wanted to make a thousand pounds, which is, which is in, in this day is a lot of money with the RAND rate. But at the time it wasn't a huge amount. And I just remember this guy, Peter coming in every day and he, whether he made a hundred ticks by 10 past nine in the morning, he'd, he'd go home. Or if it took him all day till five to five till the auction to make a hundred ticks, he'd stay there and just go home. And I always wondered why he, if he'd made his money at 10 past five, at 10 past nine in the morning, why he didn't stay and try to make 200, 300 or 400. Never questioned it, but that's all he did for years and years and years. I mean, I found out like near the end of it, he'd actually just sort of retired to a farm at like the age of 30. And it, it just struck me and how many guys I'd been with that had made millions and blown millions in a week. And here was this chap who was just going for the small, small hits, but he tried to do it every single day consecutively. He had his rules in place. He wasn't looking for the massive home runs. He wasn't taking massive risk, but he just did it for years and years and years. And that always stuck with me that you don't always have to look for that home run. You don't. Everyone as a trader is coming in looking for that. Like I want to make, you know, I want to make that millions. <laughs> it never works like that. You you can make it. It's easy to make a million, but I promise you can lose it in one hour and go against you. So, I mean, that was, that was the one thing that, that stuck with me on, on the positive side. Um, and I guess on the negative side, what I've, what I've seen over the years with dot-com blowing up and uh, the 2008 financial crisis, I guess it goes back to some part of our earlier conversation that, that leverage can be a killer. You know, leverage can work in your favor and it can work against you. Um, and, and, I, and I've seen that. You've got to be very, very, very. And I've got a lot of stories that, that colleagues of mine that have blown up that just took too much risk. And and then I guess the other advice with that is is very careful instruments that you trade. And you know, you, another lesson I learned is is you know sell when you can, not when you have to. Uh, and you want to be in liquid shares when you need to get out. You want to get out. Um, and, I, and I had a lot of colleagues, unfortunately, over the years that that took on too much risk. They couldn't go out of a trade, and and they were gone. But once again, too much risk. Just manage, manage risk in this business. Yeah. Um, this this industry is is is, is uh, um, peculiar in in in, in that you, it, it it's very forgiving of of um, mistakes, especially in bull markets. Um, mm. People have short memories, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think people continuously fall to on 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 the same traps? Because it's not like um, these rules are hidden rules or secret rules that belongs to some secret secret society belonging to like to the top one percent of traders. Why do people keep falling on the same trade of of just risking too much on positions? 
think it's greed. Honestly, I think it's greed. People, people are looking, as I said, they're looking for that home run. They take on more and more and more risk. And they're looking for that massive home run. And I think it's greed, whether it's where it's John Merriweather at LTCM or, uh, you know, Bill Wang recently with, uh, with Octagos. And, you know, there's the, you know every, as you said, it, it, you know, every single year this time it's different and someone else comes up and blows up. And I think if you look at most of those cases, most of those cases are not managing risk. Uh, they don't think it's going to happen. Um, and and I, and, I, and I think people just just overextend themselves. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a saying that, that history doesn't often repeat itself, but it, it actually rhymes. So I think you need to go back and look over, over time. You know, things, things do, they do look very similar over time. Um, and I look at the markets at the moment with the S&P. I mean, the Dow Jones, you know, not even, what, 35 minutes ago, just opened up at another new all-time high. Um, you know, things do not go up in a straight line, and we're probably in a little bit of a blood phase now, but I'm not going to pick a top. Um, <laughs> let this, you know, you, you've got to watch this market, wait till it turns. But again, I think people people get greedy. People will think this time is different. And if, if my experience or, in, or any book you read uh, for the past couple of hundred years, whether it's trading rice futures in the 17th century, you know, the commonalities, people get greedy, they overexpose themselves, they take too much risk. And the markets can be very unforgiving. They're very humbling beasts, these markets. Yeah. And all, all, all of these things that we're speaking about um, just uh, speaks to, 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 to the rules you have as a trader or as, uh, as an investor. Mm. Um, do you think the problem is the lack of discipline in following rules or the absence of rules? At least in I the think market. it's the absence of rules. And I think you've got I think you've got to be very hard with yourself. You know, when you sit down, you've got to, you know, every trader that, that trades the market has to have a game plan. Like like any profession, like any business, like any sport, like like any like any competitive business that you approach, you have to be professional and you have to have a plan. So I mean, you know, my first question would be to like, what is your objectives of your game plan? I mean, it's it's really like it's really simple. Like, what do you want to do? Like, like what are your, what's your game plan? Do you want the yen to go up? Do you want the FTSE to go down? you want the DAX to go up? I mean, what is your game plan? I mean, I mean how do you execute your game plan? You know, how often, and also how often do you revive it? I guess the other thing I meant to add as well, you ask about lessons learned, you know, markets are constantly evolving. They're constantly changing. And you also, as a rule, have to revise your game plan. You know, if it took you you know, 50 or 100 trades and they're going well, then all of a sudden it's not going well, then how do you revise it? And I think we're seeing it now in the markets as well, you know, with what's happening with value and growth, uh, talking about stocks at the moment. You know, we, we, we're leaning more towards, at some point, you know, inflation's coming next year, interest rates are rising. Well, growth shares don't do well in that environment and value comes back. So how are you adapting to a changing environment? You know, markets are evolving. Um, and I guess also, you know, um, it's a hard lesson for people to write down, but you know what? Look at yourself and say, like, like what kind of trader are you? What are your strengths and your weaknesses? You know, how does how does your trading style fit? And then ask yourself as well, like, what is your edge? It's, it's something I always ask young traders who who sort of are, who've come to ask me advice and stuff. I say, what is your edge? Like, what are you different to other traders? Like, how are you going to make money? Because you know, other market participants are after your money every single time you put a trade on. The market's not going to make you money. The other market guys are going to take your money. So what is your personal edge? You know, what are you good at? What is your differentiation factor? And then work on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
how, how does one know uh, uh, or distinguish between um, data, uh, I suppose, data fitting uh, positions and, you know, changing mm. strategy because, or changing strategy because you're ill-disciplined and you're trying to fit data or changing strategy because the market has changed and you have to adapt to how does one distinguish between the two and how long um, do you allow a losing streak or to, 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 I suppose, capitulate to altering the rules mm. and how long do you wait it out? Like, you know, every system has a bad patch. This, this is a my system's uh, um, bad patch and uh, I'm just going to wait it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you touched on a good point. A lot of, a lot of uh, modeling and a lot of traders, quantitative traders, you know, it's quite easy to manipulate the devices. You know, it's quite easy to tweak, you know, to tweak a closing price or how many days you look at or how far you want to look back at. And I guess it comes with a little bit of, of gut experience and, and you can actually sort of, you know, realize, have you seen this trade before? Go back to your, your history, go back to your journals, you know, don't tweak it too much. But for me, you know, if I have a, a bit of a, a losing patch, I always take three days off um on that side so if I've, I've had a, if i've taken a bit of a knock i've had a big drawdown and, and a big drawdown for me is double digits you know if it goes more than eight nine ten percent drawdown from from my nav well then i'm quite happy to turn my screens off and and get out the, get out the trade turn away cut your losses take a three-day breather come back and start fresh uh, because yeah. otherwise you tend to you know traders tend to want to make that money back you know the market owes you <laughs> money the market owes you nothing no you got it wrong you know get yeah. out of it Mm. And, and and that's how tilt builds up. And how, how does that break uh, help you, um, that break from the market? It stops you looking at a trade. As, let me, let me get, but also let me reassess. You've cut your loss, right? You've cut it. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you're not, it's gone. So you, there's no opportunity costs lost. You've cut your trade. You've you got on to, you look for the next one. But also, it also what happens when you're stuck in a losing trade as well is you, you, you're missing other opportunities. You know, you might be watching, you know, you're watching a share go down or share go up, whether you're long or you're short or whatever it's going to be. And, and you're constantly like, you just keep, you're just watching this and you're missing other opportunities out there. So what a break does, it makes you step away, take a look and go, sure, you know, I'm out of that trade now, but goodness me, I didn't see what oil was doing. Oil was at $82. I think, you know, it looks like the setup's perfect. It fits my criteria. You know, the, the risk reward levels are acceptable for me. I didn't even see that. And it fits in with my trading plan. I and mean, then you could have been three days, but I'm strict. It's three days. I'll wait back, I come back, and I look, and I'll put the trade on again. But it gives you an opportunity to just get a fresh slate. Otherwise, you do, uh, you, know, you become a little bit too attached to a losing trade and you miss those opportunities. And the and market during, always gives you an opportunity. During during the, the those three days, do you not look at charts at all? Or, um, or do you look at them, but Zippo. not do nothing? Nothing, 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 nothing. Go back to my day job, look after my client <laughs> money, do my, look at my funds. Uh, do my housekeeping, do my stuff, but on on the PA side, on the on the trading side, it's always been a lesson. Uh, once those uh, those three days are gone, it's almost like solitude, reflection, write down, fill it up your journal, write it down, what you lost money on, why did you lose money, what did you do wrong, get out of it. Yeah. No, no, got you. So, um, what's your basic approach these days, um, or uh, your, your your objective in the markets? Um, if you could wrap it up in a brief summary, or uh, a story, or an anecdote. Um, and how does it contrast to how you started 25 odd years ago? Mm. So the difference from 25 years ago is everything's real time. Everything's real time. I mean, I used to I used to have to go to 
to the there was a library at Blackfriars in London, which used to keep all the annual reports from all the companies. And I used to have to go and spend my mornings there. My boss would tell me to go to research and to go through all the physical stuff. Of course, now everything's real time and done on a touch of a button. Um, and sometimes I, I sometimes I do feel there's a lot more noise than we used to. And in fact, if you look some of the, look at some of the better sort of real good heads or good traders out there, you find a lot of them don't even live on Wall Street. They live in some obscure mountain in the middle of Michigan, with a lake in front of them. You know, without the noise. So so. I think how things have changed now. There's too much noise now, quite frankly, and there's too much information. And I think as modern traders now, we need to learn how to filter that information to the current environment. Um, and if I if I if I look at where we are now, I think there's personally I think there's a lot more there's a lot more trends that are happening now. There's whether whether it's electric vehicles or uh, green energy or the lack of fossil fuels or interest rates rising or bonds. I think we're heading into a lot of trends, but the trends what we used to see decades ago are a lot shorter so i think people you know traders and market players when you've got money on the table now i think you need to have a far more active uh, a far more aggressive portfolio stance i.e the the days of buying you know holding it for 10 years i think are long gone we're living in a far more real-time noisy environment and i think the trick for all of us is, is how to to filter that noise and look for opportunities no i got you um you know, it's often said in the markets, there's no holy grail, which um, to some degree I disagree um, because clearly there's some people who, who who seem to have a holy grail, except the holy grail is different from 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 every individual. I have my own holy grail, you would have mm. your own, and every trader in the world has their own uh, um, mm. holy grail. What has been your holy grail that has guided you to, um, to success? What are the principles that, uh, were key. What are some of the key principles that could take one to a path where they can discover their own holy grail? So I think the, uh, if, I'll mention two, if you don't mind. I mean, the first one for me, very important. You don't have an ego. There's no space for ego in this game. Um, you know, you always find traders who talk about their winners and never talk about their losers. There's no ego. Be, don't have ego. The market is very humbling, and so, you know, if you have a bit of ego, it, it's a very gentle mass market will speed back very quick. So don't have ego, be humble in this business. And now secondly, I think big rule for me, and, and it is a rule that I've always stood by. You know, I accept that I'm going to lose. I'm quite happy with that now. It's taken me a long time, but I accept you're never going to get every win. If you, if, you want, if you win every single trade for 25 years, I wouldn't be talking to you on the phone. <laughs> I'm sitting on my yacht in Monaco. You've got to accept you're going to lose. And that ties in with the point I raised in the beginning. We want to make more than we lose. So those are two things. Be humble. Don't have ego in this business. And ex be acceptable. It's okay to lose. Just remember that. No, I got you. So, so you 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 started your career quite likely with 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 a mentor. Have you ever have you in turn mentored other people? Um, and and what are what are some of the key things that would that told you someone was going to be a good trader or not so not such not such a good trader? Um, sure. So I do, I have mentored people over the years. Um, uh, you know, I've toyed with, uh, when I used to work in investment banks, I always had a, we always had young traders on the desk and I've always enjoyed teaching and passing on knowledge. So I do enjoy the teaching. So I'm often, I am a mentor and I'm quite happy to, to, to give out knowledge. I think it's a, it's a wonderful profession to be in and it served me well. I'm happy to pass it on. And as I said, 
it's one of the few professions I honestly think if you put the homework in, you are awarded financially for doing the job. And I've always liked that fact. It's very black and white. If you're a good trader, you make money. If you're a bad trader, you lose money. Uh, traits that I've, that I've found, I don't think there's any, anything steadfast. Although, I must tell you, I find, I find people that are clearer thinkers, better traders. Often, and I, and I might be a bit controversial saying this, but I've had traders that have come across our desks with PhDs in mathematics and statistics and they quantitative and they, it's almost too much. It's almost, I think sometimes people forget that, that in the bare basics of what we do, whether it's long or short, you want to buy low and sell high. It's as simple as that. And I think sometimes people try to get too clever with these markets and some of the better traders I've come across, and they don't necessarily have a mathematical background. Some of them do have a mathematical, some have a finance, some of them don't have a finance. In fact, some of the some of the research done, some of the best traders that I've come across in my generation have nothing to do with mathematics. In fact, the one really good trader that I've come across was a musician. And some people often said it was the ability for the person to read music, like reading charts. You could just read, you could, honestly, you could just read the, the rhymes, the numbers. So I don't think it's a, a steadfast rule, but I do think some of the better traders I've come across have been diligent, no ego hardworking and, uh, and, and an ability to just simplify things. Don't overcomplicate it, which is so hard in this world now when, when everything is available on screen. You can bombard yourselves with, with charts and graphs and maths and numbers and quants and info. Sometimes we really need a filter just to go back to the basics. Remember what, remember what you're trying to do as a trader. Yeah. yeah. And how, how much a bigger difference does having a mentor have on – the mentor and the one being mentored and how does one look for one? Um, I don't know how one looks for one. I <laughs> honestly don't um, because I was fortunate enough um, before we had screen-based trading or the rest of it, we were all standing in a pit. So I had, you know, 3000 people on a trading floor. So I don't know how you do it in this modern trading world and half us are trading from a cell phone in our mum's bedroom. So I have no idea, but um but it, it, what a difference it made to me was, you know, trading is, you need people to tell you that you're wrong. You need to bounce ideas of people. And if I can generate it, if I can pull it back even closer to, to us at Sunnam now, we're slowly starting to come back in the office. Um, and I have missed so much sitting around a boardroom table with 20 brokers saying, I like Anglos, or I don't like Sassel, or I like this. And someone next to me saying, Nick, you're an idiot. This is why. You need people to tell you when you're right and you need people to tell you when you're wrong. And I think that's where a mentor comes in. And with years of experience, they can say, I've seen this before. It doesn't work like that. And, and, and I think sometimes you don't want to hear it, but you need some gray-haired guy with <laughs> the scars <laughs> of the market to tell you sometimes that, that it doesn't work that way. No, no, got you, got you. Um, in, in, I suppose in absence of, of, of mentors, books can be can be some of the great mentors, uh, um, you know, around. Definitely. Mm. What are some of the most impactful books you've you've read over the over your career, other than your journal? Um, and what are, what are the lessons that you pick from those books? So my first book I ever got was. Uh, obviously, um, reminiscence of a stock operator. Everyone's read that. Jesse Livermore, <laughs> yeah, fictional story of the world's greatest trader. I mean, when I was in the early '90s, every single 
but you, I mean, you used to sit in the tube in London and you'd see everyone going into the city and in central I'm going into, into, into work. And almost every suit pocket you could see like sticking out the top was reminiscent <laughs> of a stock operator. So that's what, that was the first book I ever read. And then, then becoming an op- option trader, there was a lot of technical books I was forced to read. There was a guy called Sheldon Nattenberg. It's the most boring book you ever read about option trading and pri- option pricing, but that was the background there. But books that had influenced on me, there was a, there's a very good author called Mark Douglas. Um, his original book was called The Disciplined Trader. Um, I've actually given that out numerous times to people. Uh, he was he was probably one of the first sort of, I guess, traders to come along with that. We all use the buzzwords behavioral sciences now, you know, behavioral sciences, and that's like the new buzzword. He was there 30 years ago talking about human emotions and trading. So that was Mark Douglas. He did a follow-up book off The Disciplined Trader. I think it was called Trading in the Zone. Yeah. You can probably buy it on Amazon as, as, a, as a sort of a, a pack, you know, the two of them together. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. So I found I found my my sort of trading knowledge and reading is sort of lent more towards the emotional behavioral side. Because I guess for me, that was the bit that I needed to control. I don't want to be emotional when I trade. I, I know the numbers. I'm good with spreadsheets. I, I, I know the modeling. I can model black shoals backwards in my sleep. For me, it was the, the emotional side. So those books were great. And then any of George Soros's books that were brilliant. Um, and there was actually a really good book by a guy called uh, Niedenhofer called Education of a Speculator. That's also a good one. So I like stories of traders that have done it and how they've done it. And, and if you read like some of Soros's book, like one of his famous ones is Soros and Soros. Um, you know, he'll tell you, like, like, and this is a good lesson for traders. Look, he obviously had the, the, the money behind him. But he sometimes went six months without a trade. But nothing was there. Nothing was set up. It just nothing. The stars didn't line up. And, of course, he had the luxury, of course, that he had made his money and he could sit on his hands. But I think it's a lesson that you don't always have to trade. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, any of the – I'm sure you've read every single one 20 times. Uh, any other sort of market wizard books are great, just how people think and what they're doing. I mean, I still read the original market wizards, even though it's so out of date and probably <laughs> nothing's applicable. <laughs> It's still it's still such a such a good read. So I mean that's that's kind of the stuff that's been in my library. Yeah, the the, the original one, my, uh, I was re-listening to it recently. It's still one of my favorite books. It's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> nah, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the. the I suppose the better books are the the ones that transcend time, the oldies, the classics that um, you know lasted twenty, thirty, some of them fifty plus years. Um, mm. and still get recommended, you know, centuries later. You like the reminiscences of a stock operator. Yeah, because because those lessons don't change. You know, if you read some of those adages of Jesse Livermore and all about lessons like don't average in, and, uh, you know, all those things about cutting, you know, all, like, all those lessons, they don't change. Yeah. They don't change to this day. Um, and they, they still are, are applicable. You know? so, so the older books definitely... Um, are lessons to be learned that are, t- that are absolutely timeless. As I said, I mean, the original, you know, if you're, if you're a student of the markets or a speculator in the markets, you know, original futures trading started with rice futures in the 17th century. You know, people have been speculating on prices of things for 400 years. Um, those lessons don't change. Eh? Those things are still exactly the same. And, uh, and I love those old books. And so those are the ones I'd go by. There's also one other, I think, is a guy called... Um, John John Cody he writes a book you'd enjoy this it's called The Hour Between the Dog and the Wolf 
Um, and it's actually, it's also a psych psychological book about this psychiatrist that he does a case study. It's a tr and he, it's based on his experience of studying traders on a trading floor and how the good banks now, if you, if you got a trader on the trading floor that does a winning streak, the bank pulls them off. So if you're like a Goldman Sachs, you've got like a superstar trader and he's done like five or six winners. He's made you 10 gazillion. They come onto the floor, they literally close your desk down and they take you away because the, the, the whole mental background to your brain, et cetera, you think you become invincible. Certainly men, which is why sometimes women are better traders than men. Men think they're invincible. And uh, this particular book tells you that sometimes, you know, you need to just, uh, when you have a winning streak, you actually just, step, again, step away, take a break, take your profits and walk. Yeah, it sounds, sounds so like... Those, a, those are kind of stuff that's been in my library. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, an interesting read, the, the, that last one. You said an hour, an hour mm, between the dog mm. and the wolf. An hour between the wolf and the, the, wolf and the dog, yeah. And, and it actually, again, it's... <laughs> us men are sometimes got, again, too much <laughs> ego. That's why so, often the study is that women are a lot better at the, at the egos than men are as traders. Yeah, it sounds like a nice psychological book. Mm. Yeah. So I asked on Twitter um, if, if anyone had uh, a question for you. Um, someone wanted mm -hmm. to ask you your top three uh, mid-cap long picks. I presume JSC, right? Yeah, yeah, JSC. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I said all right, so hard. Um, I still like Cup, Cup Industrial, KAP. I think that SA space where they play in with the uh, with um, sort of the bottling industry, the chipboards, the home improvements, the took uh, a lot a lot of business to do with uh, the Mercedes C class that they install in in down the east coast. Yeah, that that that's sort of I like that cup industrial. I think that's still got legs. Very well run business. Very much SA Inc. Very old school. Very low PEs. Uh, that's worth a look. Um, there's a lot of talk around city lodge um uh, just a full disclosure i do own them for clients and for myself uh city lodge i like um i mean that's good. i mean they, they're just making money now and they've got 20 percent occupancy we haven't even opened up yet uh, and the stock's you know sitting sub sub five bucks so i think that's definitely long term 100 worth more than it's doing right now um and then a third one i don't know i think i think you know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always about what's the next trend. You know, what can you jump on? You know, hence the you know city lodges with the reopening trade. Well, what about inflation coming? I tend to like some of the things. Maybe gold. I don't know. Maybe DRD. I quite like as a, as a medium small cap, or or multi choice. I quite like multi choice. You know, there's a bit of corporate action happening there. Um, you know, the French Canal is is Canal Plus is is taking a big stake in them. They're using them to roll out into Africa because uh, there's not yeah. enough fiber. So I think uh, I think multi-choice at you know these levels under 110 is is worth a pun. So uh, there's three there's three to go with. No, no. Um, so before I let you go, um, how how different is it when when you invest in client money and when you invest in your own personal money, um, both for long term and for short term, outside of the the trade? Uh, it's very different. It's very different. And if, and if anyone tells you it's not, they're lying. It's very different. <laughs> You know, your own your own personal money is a very different to client money, and and it's it you know other people's money OTM as they call it in industry, other people's money you tend to not get too emotionally involved with, and it's, with your own money you always do. With, with, as I said, if you if you say you don't get involved with your own money, that's absolutely rubbish. You you everyone is is emotionally involved with their own money, so it's very different. And in fact, I'd even argue it's 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 a lot 
easier to invest uh, um, other people's money than your own money because you do take a far more. I mean, I've got so many rules in place managing my clients' money at Sunnum, you know, that, that I do, you know, I think I almost take a far more measured approach. And plus also, you know, we have the big house behind it with other people's money. You know, you've got, you've got the house view, you've got the research, the interest, the analysts. So, um, yeah, uh, to go back to the original question, very different. And I think it's, I think it's a lot easier and a lot, a lot less um, emotionally attached when you, you can almost see things on a bigger picture when you manage other people's money. And I think you make, and I think you make much better decisions. So, uh, personally, I've done both. I've run my own hedge fund. I've run my own books. I've, I've traded around the world and I've run client money. Uh, I think personally, I, I prefer the, the ability to run other people's money. And also, again, no one's, you know, no one's an island. You know, it's nice to, to talk to people, nice to manage their money and nice to see them grow and nice to make money. So I prefer the other people's route. Cool, cool. No, and Nick, um, thank you very much for for taking the time. I'm going to park it here. Um, oh, pleasure. Hmm. Yeah, it was great fun chatting to you, man. Yeah, and if anyone wants to, anyone wants any advice or anyone, I'm sure they can email you. You can forward the email to me. You know, I'm always happy to to help. I, I love this game, love this profession. It's been good to me, and I've wanted to do it since uh, I hadn't even left school. So <laughs> I'm more than happy to more than happy to help out there. Yeah, yeah. If 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 anyone has a has a question for Nick, feel free to drop me an email in Jabula at Koza. I will forward it to him. Um, so we're gonna park it here. Thanking for hanging with us up to this far. Um, yeah, we're gonna park it here. A big thank you to our sponsors, Axnus.com, um, and a big a big thank you to our guest. Uh, Nick Kunz, find him on Twitter at Nick Kunz2. I'll leave the link in the in the show notes below. Otherwise, um, thank you for thank you very much again for for hanging with us. The the podcast, you know, do join Simon Brown and myself tonight as you're listening 5:30 on Zoom for the Follow the Trader series. Uh, we're going live there. All of the links to that will be in the show notes below. Uh, in the show notes below. Otherwise, thank you Nick for your time and thank you for listening. Check you next time with the Village Trader. Cheers.